0: Good afternoon and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ in Thieferber Falls, Minnesota. You can hear Rasslin' Memories not only on the FM dial, but you can hear it online at RadioNorthland.org. You can hear us stream it right now, or you can check us out on a replay, or if you want to check out some of our back catalog, we have it all there at RadioNorthland.org. And we're also part of the Tune in Radio family, so a couple of different ways to check out Rasslin' Memories. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my co-host, uh, Mr. George Shire, noted pro wrestling historian and author. George, today we're going to do a bit of a thematic approach with a very extra special guest. And yes, of course, George, it's always good to have you uh, back on Wrestling Memories.
1: Oh, Glenn, it's always great when we have our Saturday afternoons with Wrestling Memories. And you're right. We have with us today, we have a return guest. One that went over really well here about a year and a half ago when he put out an excellent book. We had him on the show talking about that great book. And today we're going to take a little bit different approach. We're going to have our guest, Mr. Bob Backlund, the former WWF World Heavyweight Champion. And we're going to talk about his ventures in Madison Square Garden. I think we've got him on the line. Bob, are you with us?
2: Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Right. Bob Backlund, ladies and gentlemen.
2: You know, uh, in uh, in uh, down at uh, Wrestlemania, uh, it, I, Bruno and Sam Martino and I sat together and did a, a video for the network about the beginning of Madison Square Garden. And it was very interesting.
1: Wow, that sounds like something. Are they going to release it on the network or what are they going to do?
2: On the network, yes. And then Bruno oh. did a... A, an art, uh, a interview for me uh, about my book and what he said, what he thought of it, and he said he handed it down to every one of his grandchildren.
1: That's a great, uh,
2: great applause for the book. And, and we were, uh, you want to give a quick plug for the book,
1: Bob, so that uh, you no, know, I do. I
2: want to thank you know, like we were on a while back, and I want to thank all the people that uh, uh, you know got the website. It's uh, BobBacklundNow dot com where they can order the book, and uh, you know, I sent some out there. And I want to thank them for ordering the book. And, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an honor for me to be on the program and uh, have another opportunity to maybe uh, introduce the book to some other people. I believe that it's a, it's a road or a tool to inspiration in my book.
1: And I totally agree, and I was glad that we had you on the first time. And it's always good to hear that sales are still going for you. You know, Bob, as Glenn pointed out in the uh, opening of the program, We are doing something a little bit different today because, and you mentioned Bruno San Martino. I might add that Madison Square Garden, from the onset of Bruno's title reign in May of 1963, and then continuing forward, Madison Square Garden became the mecca for the the stars to want to appear in. And, of course, Bruno headlined it for his uh, first seven and a half years as champion, continued on with Pedro Morales, and then superstar Billy Graham, and then your title reign. And man, I'll tell you what, I'm going to let Glenn kind of start off, because I know he wants to touch on the beginning, but your your reign in Madison Square Garden is nothing short of sensational. So I'm going to let Glenn kind of chime in, and then Bob, you and I will pick up after that. That's
2: fine, sir.
0: Okay, Bob, I'm going to enter into the conversation, and let's talk about, uh, let's, let's get to, to the moments uh, of your last days before you went up to New York. Where were you working, and when did you get that call to head up to New York, and then we'll get right into it. Let's talk a little bit about your pre, uh, pre-time pre working for, uh, before you worked for Vince.
2: Well, well, well I, I started out in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That was my first match.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Is that how far back you want
0: to go? <laughs> well, no, we're going to go. Uh, where were you at when you uh, got the call? When, when, when they decided that you were going to go and you were going to get promoted uh, and work this territory up, up in New York, the land of Bruno and, and Pedro and some of the greats that George mentioned. Uh, who was it that got you in touch with uh, Vince McMahon Sr.?
2: I was down in uh, uh, Florida Championship Wrestling at the time. And uh, I was in the office and um, Jim Barnett had called me in. He said, Vince McMahon Sr. wants to talk to you on the phone. He called him up, and I talked to Vince McMahon Sr., and then Vince McMahon Sr. said, I'll set some dates up with uh, um, Eddie Graham and Jim Barnett so you can come up and uh, I can watch you work in the Philadelphia uh, arena.
0: Mm-hmm. And from there uh, you moved on and this was your first taste uh, of, of the WWF, and also your first taste in New York came in the month of April uh, on April 25th. We're going to take this thing back to 1977 when you headed up to Madison Square Garden and, uh, boy, your first time in what has been considered one of the great arenas of all time. What were those feelings like, uh, you know, getting yourself up? You've made it to this level uh, in your career, but what was it like to get into the Garden and, and work uh, with the New York crowd for that first time against uh, Executioner Number 2?
2: Yeah, well, I was... You know, I, I, I had some uh, matches with some great wrestlers, Harley Race, Terry Funk, Jack Briscoe, and the all... Uh, were very uh, important as far as me developing my confidence as far as having a great match and be able to entertain people at a high level. And uh, I really appreciate what they did for me and the things they uh, showed me and taught me. Um, and, but I was pretty, uh, pretty comfortable about uh, going in the ring and, uh, and having a war or a battle that the people are going to be uh, enjoying.
0: And absolutely. And George, you have a little bit more information about uh, Bob's first match. You have a couple of actually, you have a nice little file, let's just say, on some of Bob's work.
1: Well, one of the things, and Bob, I, I'm happy you're going to probably clarify this for us. Um, you had talked about getting that call into the office down in Florida and talking with Vince McMahon Sr. One of the I guess I want to call it a rumor at this point that I had heard way back in 1977, and this is back in a time when the territories they still would work together and sometimes exchange talent, and and you know wrestlers could move from one territory to the other, you know yep, usually sir. with the blessings of the promoters. The rumor I heard at the time was that Vince McMahon Sr. was looking for a champion, someone to replace Superstar Billy Graham, and he had talked with Sam Muchnick in St. Louis, and it was Sam Muchnick that recommended you, Bob Backlund, and that was the reason that uh, Vince Sr. Uh, put, the, put the word out to you. Now, it, do you recall that being uh, ever revealed to you, or is that something that uh, happened?
2: Well, um, I, yeah, the way, way I understand it is um, Vince McMahon Sr., was calling the promoters and saying, Who's the best All American boy to replace Bruno San Martino? Right. right. And uh, I had a little incident in a trunk of a, in a, in a car with some other guys. They wanted me to do uh, drugs with them, and I wouldn't do it. I turned that down, and that got around the business uh, big time, and all the promoters knew it that I had some integrity. And they knew that Vince Sr. wanted his champion to have more integrity out of the ring than in the ring. And if I would have, and I was thinking about pretending doing it with him, but I didn't do that. I just said, no, I'm not going to do it, and I, I wouldn't do it. But if I would have pretended, I wouldn't have been, uh, I wouldn't have had that same opportunity. They picked me because they didn't dare send somebody else because Vince would have been mad about somebody sending them, they didn't in somebody that was doing drugs up there right. to be his champion.
1: Well, and you know, one of the things too, Bob, uh, back in that time frame, during the 60s and 70s, the formula for the Madison Square Garden WWF champion at the time was always to have usually an ethnic champion like Bruno San Martino, who appealed to the the great Italian population, and then you had Pedro Morales that uh, appealed to the uh, Puerto Rican-type fans, and they kind of went away from that a little bit when they put Superstar Graham in there for a year, because uh, Billy Graham, you know, he was the first heel that they let have the championship for uh, about a year's time frame, which was out of their character. And it was Billy more like had maybe, so much
2: charisma. It was more now like maybe... they wanted maybe, to go
1: back to the formula of a, of a babyface champion, and that's where you came in.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had it for about six uh, months, I think. Yeah, Okay. Because I came in, I came in 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 seventy seven. Right. Uh, you won and, the title um, from
1: Billy Graham on uh, February twentieth of
2: seventy uh, eight. Yes. Yep. That was well, we no. The, I I got was, the championship on February twentieth of nineteen seventy
1: eight. Right. And and you know that was a new experiment too because you were the first uh non i'm going to just say non ethnic champion for a new york audience for the for the east coast audience and yeah. there had to be some uh uh oh i don't know reservation about it to see if it was going to work but i think what you said you were that all american type example and vince senior was willing to see how that goes and I'll tell you what. Looking at the success you had for close to five years as WWF champion, it
2: went well. Even Vince Senior had the age lowered in Madison Square Garden because I was all American boy guy. That's that's very interesting.
0: And how perfect we was it how,
2: the age limit
0: and how perfect was it though Bob that uh, when you won the title it was on washington 's birthday, and that was when the garden decided once again to start running the annual washington's birthday uh uh shows and how how great is that to be the all American boy and then winning it on our first president's uh birthday
2: yeah that was uh it was, there was a lot of wonderful things going on back then, and the, one of the things that really uh uh you know i was uh uh, uh, you know Bruno Sammartino was uh, a great champion uh, and I still say he's the greatest champion of ever but uh, the way he was and the way he was doing things uh, uh, I was really, really proud to be able to go in there and try to um, you know do the kind of job that he was doing with the people and in the ring and uh, um, just all facets of his life I uh, tried to kind of mirror and you know he just because uh, he was doing everything so good
1: so Bob when you uh, when you went up to New York and and you had your first three uh, you had three singles matches before you won the championship and then my records show that you were in an eight man tag team match in January of 78 when when exactly did you get the nod that they were going to uh promote you to their champion and put you over superstar. Did, did that come right away or did you have to work those four matches to, to
2: get it? How did you I for I I flew up to Philadelphia. It was the I I believe it's a Civic Center in Philadelphia. It's a real older building. I don't even know if it exists anymore. But I had a match with him and then uh, Vince, man, I shook Vince Man Senior's hand and I went back to Florida and they had me come up again. On my second time around he took me back into the we did most of our business in the bathroom. Well, and he I, I told understand. me that uh he was going to drop the the, w, the I was going to be the next champion. The second time I came up to Philadelphia. Wow. And then so and then uh and I um I was kind of a little bit uh, uh and I was questioned a little bit not just just in facial expression but I was wondering how that was going to happen with Bruno being the champion. And he explained to me that uh on this date uh superstar Billy Graham is gonna get the belt from uh you know from Bruno and then I'm gonna take it from from him on February twentieth of nineteen seventy
1: eight. Right. Okay.
2: And that's what happened. And the weird thing was that uh uh Billy Graham was trying to talk Vince out of putting it on me. And I kinda wondered whether, you know, I I didn't know Vince McMahon and I, I uh it kinda I was wondering, oh, AC, we going to do it. And then uh but Vince McMahon had a lot of integrity and he said I promised him, I told you when I was going to uh, when you were going to get it and when you were going to lose it and uh we're going to keep going on that plan.
1: Well, and that was one of the things that the promoters of that old school era did too. They planned out usually 6 months to a year ahead as to what they wanted to be doing in their respective territories and to do a championship uh situation like you're talking about, They definitely had to build you up and give Billy Graham a chance to be established as the champion and then make that that important move and give the title to you. Bob, I have this question for you. You mentioned just a moment ago about the integrity and the promise of Vince McMahon Sr. Are, Are you able to give us a comparison how it was to work with Vince Sr. versus eventually working with Vince Jr.? Were their philosophies different? Were their styles different? Kind of give us a feel for the difference between father and son.
2: I think they were just the, the complete opposite. The complete I opposite. But say that. yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, you know, but uh, you know, when, when Vince, uh, when I was wrestling for Vince McMahon, uh, Vince McMahon Sr., he was—I knew everything that was going to happen. I knew every little detail. And sometimes he would ask me my opinion and ask me if that he thought, I thought that was all right. Um, for example, one time he was they were thinking about putting it on Jimmy Snooker. and mm-hmm. I said he'd be great in the ring, but look what he's doing outside the ring. And they decided right. not to. He decided not to do it. Um, and I, uh, But uh. Um, and then when it changed over to Vince Jr., you know I don't know you weren't there, but that the. the business was chaos uh, when that happened. You know, there was a war going on.
1: Right. Oh and, yeah. Uh, I realized that
2: it was a war, war, war. And, uh, you know, Vince had some opposition that was pretty strong and he had to fight back in those guys. And he made some promise to me and didn't keep them. And I didn't really think of it this way before, but I, he kind of had to make them that way. um, and you couldn't make. I don't think you could make a promise back then because the business was changing. The then the war was going on. Um, Definitely. But there well, was, that was things one thing he said that to me that he didn't do, and I was it. It shocked me because his uh, dad never operated that way. But he that he wasn't in that kind of situation where there was people trying to have an, you know a war against him. Well, Vince, that was Vince the interesting Jr.
1: thing about that that war in in eighty four when. Uh, You know, and we're jumping ahead just a little bit here because that was at the time when when you were going to drop the title to the Iron Sheik and and the national expansion was starting. But there were a lot of promoters around the country that were making promises that either they couldn't keep or didn't keep, which was, for a lot of those promoters, was out of their character in years previous. But it was a a different type of a battle outside the ring to uh, supremacy. Yep. Okay, well, I want Glenn to kind of get back into things here because we've got you winning the title on February 20th, 1978 against superstar Billy Graham. So, Glenn, maybe you can kind of... Uh, bring us through some of those great matches and challengers and, and then uh, whenever you want me to step back in I, I'm here
0: Oh sure absolutely and uh, we're going to go in uh, I want to know because you had a couple of rematches after in uh, the months of uh, of March on the 20th 1978 and in April at the end of the month on the 28th uh, was that hanging animosity that the superstar had uh, over your their decision to put the belt on you did that ever show up in the ring when you guys worked did he ever work something a little more on the snug side did, was there ever any sort of animosity that spread out in the ring or did he keep it pretty professional as he was the uh, on the way out superstar as you were beginning your championship reign
2: no he uh uh you know he he didn't want to really drop it to me but um when he was in the ring with me uh the night i got it and every time after he didn't let up he worked as hard as he could uh, he didn't say, gosh, I'm not going to do this. They're not mm-hmm. going to do that. I'm going to kind of sit back. It our matches were, um, you know, uh, as good as they possibly could be. He didn't, he didn't let up at all. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, respect him for that. And I put him over, I said, talked about that in the book. And, uh, I respected
0: that uh, 100%. Yeah, and it had to be again uh, kind of surreal to you too because of uh, that chance meeting with uh, Billy in Fargo when you were uh, at school at uh, North Dakota State University, how that really kind of set the course for your career in pro wrestling. So, yeah, it must have been kind of a, 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 a you know, kind of a mind-blower to have the, the the guy that got you in is the man that ultimately handed over the world title to you in a, in a multi-year reign.
2: Yeah, well yeah, I I I uh I talk about that moment when I'm standing in Madison Square Garden and I'm looking at the guy across the ring and he's got the WWE belt around his waist. And I'm going to be walking uh, or driving home with the belt around my waist to take it back to my family. Um, And that guy was superstar Billy Graham, a guy I met in Fargo, North Dakota in 1971.
0: The small world it is. So
2: we keep, Just so
0: we keep it
1: straight, I, I know, Bob, you just said the WWE belt, and we just want our listeners to know that back in that era, it still was WWF. Yeah, it was WWF, yes.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, in May, uh, you had a one-off your uh, f- with, a, with a wrestler who you ended up working with a couple of years later in championship matches at the Garden. A guy who brought with him some uh, major credentials in the world of uh, weightlifting. He was an Olympian at the uh, Munich Games, and he uh, parlayed into a, a, a pretty stellar wrestling career until uh, some outside activities kind of uh, sidelined uh, his career in the 80s. I want to talk about uh, your first encounter, your Garden match. In May of 1978, with uh, Ken Patera. Now, how familiar were you with Ken uh, prior to that first time that you worked in the garden, and what was it like working that first time with Ken Patera? Uh,
2: Vince McMahon, they wanted to have a test match um, with me, you know, me introducing me, kind of introducing me to the people in New Jersey. Uh, it was Wildwood, New Jersey. They booked a match between uh, um, Ken Patera and I. And uh, just to test it out and see how the people reacted, mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, they they had to go down t- downtown and pick up some more uh, bleachers to put in the arena because the, there was a, it was a, a great crowd and it was full. And they and more people wanted in. They got a bunch more in because of these um, staging that they put up uh, for seats. And um, I had a match with Ken just just to just to feel. Uh, see what the people's reaction were when I we come into the territory.
0: Mm-hmm. And you ended and you ended up, of course, working with uh, with Cannon uh, early nineteen eighty as well. And uh, what were did you did you see noticeable differences in his developing career uh, from from seventy eight that first time you worked with him on that little one off circuit to the time you got to work a couple of main events with him in nineteen well,
2: eighty? Yeah, well, you know what uh, he had, he was a great wrestler. I was uh, when I that day I first came in there. I was. Uh, I was very excited and I was very motivated. And I, I, uh, I did some things that, uh, you know, he, uh, he said, my gosh, he just tore, tore my head off. You know? <laughs> but, uh, when I, by the time I got to wrestle him in the garden, you know, I was a little more relaxed and I was, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, is uh, kind of, kind of, uh, it, it, I got established more and I was more used to, I was more relaxed, and uh, we had a lot of fun in the garden. And I talked to Ken Pateri every once in a while on the phone. He's out in Minnesota, uh, still working hard every day, and um, uh, in, a, in a job, I should say. Uh, and uh, he's he's a great guy, and I I, I really enjoyed him, and he really kind of helped me, uh, uh, you know, uh, as far as getting my career going, uh, uh, you know, in those early matches in the garden.
0: And In June of 1978, you worked a one-off, that looks like it was no following um, match, but you worked with one of the older guard who had worked uh, in the WWWF as well as around the world. Uh, What was the experience like in the ring uh, with Spiros Arion?
2: Enjoyed every minute in the ring. He was very smooth in the ring. He was was an artist, uh, and he was uh, just like the people that I kind of came up with uh, in my early days in the business with Terry Funk and Harley Race. And Jack Biscoe said before he was uh he uh, knew what he was doing and he could uh, um you know do just about anything that you wanted to uh try to do on him and, uh and vice versa
0: Okay. And uh, George, we're going to talk, uh, we're going to bring in uh, back George Shire into the conversation, Mr. Backlund, uh, to get into uh, some of the the, the workers uh, that you wrestled with in the summertime of 1978. Uh, two guys back to back here, it looks like, that have recently passed away. We'll talk a little bit later about your uh, August and September contest with Ivan Koloff, but let's go back to July 24th, 1978. And uh, George Shire... Another George, uh, obviously, was on his school break, let's just say, from his job in Michigan. Uh,
2: well,
1: we're be talking, of summer. course, about yeah. George the Animal Steel, and that was a July 24th, 78 match. And, Bob, uh, the George Steele that was appearing in 1978 was just a little bit different than the, the George Steele that he morphed into in the mid-80s when he became kind of a playful, cartoonish-type character as a babyface. But you had him as a heel when I thought, and I remember seeing him in those days, I thought George Steele was at his best as a bad guy. What was it like working with him?
2: You know, he was his best. For me, it was, uh, um, you know, I, I wasn't used to working with somebody like that. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, it was a little shocking to go in there. You know, I'm thinking, uh, 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 you know, a fireman's carry or a single leg takedown or uh, getting the wizard on somebody or the short-arm scissor and I never really uh, had much experience with somebody that uh, was sort of um, in the uh, chaos just about throughout the match. <laughs> and so it took me a while to get used to it, but I did uh, kind of adjust to it, and I started having fun working with him. You know, it was, it was, he, was, he was a great performer and a great character, and um, uh, whether they hated him or loved him, he, uh, he entertained the people as about as strong as anybody.
1: And that's exactly what the business has always been about. Your yeah, next couple there's of room matches for all in the kinds, you know. Yep, oh yeah.
2: Yeah. And well nobody... it always
1: took a good it always took a good baby face and a good heel to make a great match.
2: Yeah. 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 That's that's true. And then but the, 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 the people actually uh uh make those two people uh uh, uh really uh, enthusiastic with their cheering and with their support as far as a uh, good guy and a bad guy, yeah.
1: Your next two matches in the Garden in August of 78 and September of 78, you had a chance to go against uh, Ivan Koloff. And the first match was stopped due to blood, where Koloff actually got the decision. And then you had a rematch, and you, you, uh, you beat Koloff in September of 78. Uh, that had to be a really good drawing match, considering Koloff being the conqueror of Bruno San Martino uh, seven yes. years before that. And of course, he still, you know, everybody believed that he could win, and you must have enjoyed those matches.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. You no, know, uh, that was, uh, you know, that's what makes the match. Uh, he was a strong opponent, and he was a tough opponent. And, uh, you know, yeah, and like you say, beating Bruno San Martino for the title, that put him on a different level for, to everybody in the world as far as a wrestler is concerned. And uh, I had a lot of respect for him before I went into the ring because of what he did in the past, and when I get out of the ring I even have more uh, uh, more um, respect for him because he just was a heck of a guy and a heck of a performer in the ring. And I could right. see why Vincent McMahon Sr. put him in the ring against the greatest guy ever.
1: Well, and you know, if you go back to 1971, uh, Bruno had actually requested that he get kind of a break after he'd had the title for seven and a half years, almost eight years, and uh, put it, he, he requested that it be Ivan Koloff to be the interim champion to pass yes. it on to Pedro. And one of the things that was interesting in those days, Bob, and, and I've always felt this way, that doing a, a championship, you know, for those long reigns like that, and your reign, of course, being over five years, this was something that really gave... Uh, credence to a champion it, it it gave prestige to it that the champion was somebody that worked hard to get to be champion but now that he is champion he continues to turn back challengers and our formula today is a little bit different they seem to change championships sometimes it seems like weekly but it really meant something back then and when when the champion lost in those days like Bruno did and eventually when you dropped it to uh, the Iron Sheik it was like shock. That was that. That was something the promoters could really count on because the fans didn't expect it.
2: Yeah, yeah, and then you know, yeah, Bruno, uh, when he lost it, uh, yeah, the the crowd was affected a lot. And uh, I know when I I lost it, I had people you know tell me that they cried that day and they were sad, and it was uh, it was a sad day for everybody, you know. But uh, that life goes on, and. Uh, You gotta keep moving, and you gotta keep uh, fighting back, and uh, just uh, do what you gotta do. Yeah.
0: I want to go into now uh, into another one-off appearance with another guy that was a a two-sport star and uh, kind of a David and Goliath a bit uh, in the matchup here when you look at it, uh, as far as the tail of the tape. You worked in October uh, with Ernie the Big Cat Lad. And let's talk a little bit about working with Ernie Ladd before we get into uh, your feud with Peter Maivia. but Ernie Ladd now that was a not not your normal run-of- the-mill guy. I mean this was an all personality, but a real athletic uh, big man as far an agile big man for his size in those 70s. Yeah, yeah he was were uh,
2: we were in the, we were in the, in the uh, locker room and uh, uh, it was Ernie Ladd and myself and Vince McMahon senior. We're talking about the match and talking what we're going to do. And, uh, uh, Vince, man, look, looks up at, uh, Ernie Ladd, which was, uh, I think he was 6'10", weighed about 350 pounds. He said, uh, Bob Backlund's going to give you the atomic knee drop and that's how he's going to win the match. And in his mind, he said that was never going to happen. I, you know, he, I was six feet tall and he was that and this and that, and he looked at me and we got in the ring and, uh. We had a heck of a match. He was a heck of a performer, um, and he uh, worked as hard as he possibly could all through the match. At the end of the match, I picked him up and put him in the, uh, the, the atomic knee drop, and uh, uh, he, he said, he, in the dressing room, he came over to me. He said, I wouldn't have believed it if I wouldn't have been there that you were going to do the uh, atomic knee drop to me. And uh, and he was, you know, at first when drin stole him that he was kind of laughing inside.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he came around and you guys put together a pretty good good solid match. I want to talk about uh, you worked with Peter Mayavia, but how they came about was, at the time Peter Villa was a, a very popular star and you guys ended up working as a tag team uh, in some non-Garden events. Uh, what led now, let's let's bring it up to uh, when you worked, uh, what happened here with, with you and Villa? It ended up uh, you getting turned upon and having your first real betrayal, I guess, as far as uh, a partner turning on you in the WWF.
2: Yeah, we were having a match, you know, a TV match, and uh, I was in the ring kind of, the guys kind of got the best of me, and they were getting me pretty good, and I I went to tag uh, uh, Peter Maivia, and uh, he gave me the short arm and walked, turned his back, and that's how it uh, blossomed into uh, him being uh, pretty hated. Yeah.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. What was the, what was the experience like working with uh, Peter on those matches in the garden that, that worked well into uh you worked in the latter part of uh, 1978 into 1979
2: Yeah, he you know, he he was a a good uh a, like I say baby face, but he he was a he was he was also a great a great heel. Uh you know, we worked uh in the ring and it was uh it was fun. And it developed and it uh came to a big peak and uh and uh, you know, he just uh, he was he did a good job on both ends of the business.
0: Mm-hmm. And George, we're going to come back, bring you back into the conversation. It was in early 1979, in the month of February, that another one of Bob's great opponents uh, in his title reign uh, first crossed paths with uh, Mister Backlund. We're talking about second-generation star Greg the Hammer Valentine. Boy, talk about double tough man. Oh yeah.
1: yeah. And you know, and Glenn, when I grew up watching wrestling, you know, I'd remembered Greg's dad, Johnny Valentine. I'd seen him as far back as the late seven or the late fifties. And Johnny was so good and just such a great uh, worker in the ring. And then Greg, I had a chance to meet him and and see him wrestle a lot of times in St. Louis before uh, he went out to the WWF. But how was it working with that second generation wrestler? And what type of chemistry did you guys have, Bob?
2: I never, I never got to meet his father, but I heard he was a, a genius in the ring. He was. Uh, I heard he could do things and uh, get more out of a headlock than anybody else in the, in the business.
1: Let, let me tell you something would.
2: about that. Let me tell you something about
1: that, Bob. Johnny Valentine, uh, he was able to do exactly what you said. He could put a headlock on his opponent, and he could literally hold it there for 15 minutes. And he could get that crowd so worked up. Now, a lot, most wrestlers couldn't do that. I mean, the fans weren't going to sit through a 15-minute rest hold, as they would have called it. But Johnny had that technique where he could irritate the fans. He could, he could keep that headlock on. And what a, what a psychology he
2: had. He really knew yeah, how to right. do it. Yeah, Yeah, he had to touch. Yeah, well, Greg Valentine, uh, you know, I met him a few times and here and there. And, uh, and we just talked like four days ago. I saw him down in Florida when, during okay. WrestleMania. And uh, he says to me, you know, geez, I just watched a match we had in, uh, for an hour match, I, uh, and uh, we didn't throw one, one punch draw. or kick each other at all. It was just a wrestling match for uh, 60 minutes. Yep, that was a
1: one-hour uh, draw,
2: your first match with him. Yes, sir. Yeah, and I, well, no, I like that I kind of match. Uh, I, I would go went home and try to think of ways where I could use less kicking and punching that rather than more and uh yeah. i loved having matches that were uh, wrestling matches and back and forth and this and that and uh, and they still work and i i really enjoyed having our matches
1: well there Especially were times in that uh, era when they could pull that
2: off yeah 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 yeah
1: yeah and the it's, attention uh, it's, 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 span it's, today isn't quite you could there still it. you
2: know what happens uh, the people are really kind of high already before you get in the ring and you, mm-hmm. you, back then you wanted the people to be kind of at a low uh, point as far as, uh, you know, excited and stuff like that. Right. You, 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 uh, uh, and then you can start out and then you can build. But, you're, but when, people, when a wrestler goes in the ring with the, with the introduction, the, all the fireworks and all that, the people are already at a high level just about before you even start right. the match.
1: All right. Well, after you got done with the Valentine Series, you, you did have one Madison Square Garden match in April of 79 against Bulldog Dick Brower. Yeah. And What was the, the lead-up to a match like that? Because usually when you wrestled against a, a heel challenger as champion, you had two or three matches before you'd get to the blow-off match and you'd move on to the next challenger. How did it happen that you'd end up with just one match against Brower at the Garden? I know you wrestled, I think you wrestled some other matches in the territory, but it was only one Garden match.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, uh, uh, they. I think they sometimes, uh, you know, they'll have three, a series of three or two matches, and then every once in a while, somebody's going to get beat on the first round. I think Greg, okay. or uh, Bob Orton Jr. was one time in. There was other ones, too, and I don't know what, how Vince was figuring it out, but uh Every once in a while it would just be a win right away rather than there's going to be a you know a return 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 right.
1: well, you had an interesting match on in june of seventy nine after that Brower match. you had a your first encounter at the garden against a guy who was called at the time the great Hussein, and of yep. course, we know that he morphed into the iron Sheik later on in his career, but that was a one off too because then you moved on to a series of matches against uh I think your best opponent, this is just my opinion, as champion, I think I I recall your greatest matches being against Pat Patterson.
2: He was the only person that ever had four matches in a row in Madison Square Garden. Yes, he did.
1: And, And, I mean, uh, you you were counted out of the ring. You had no contest. Uh, Definitely, those were classic matches.
2: Yeah, oh yeah, I do too. I I, I put Don Morocco's matches up pretty high on the total pool also. I did see
1: one Don Morocco match that you had, and I agree with you, but then I was always a Don Morocco fan from my days when he wrestled in the AWA back in the early 70s. Yes, sir. uh, He he was a talent. Uh, Don was a talent because he he was able to pick up so much from so many wrestlers like Bachwinkle and Stevens and, Larry yes. Hennig and Ivan Koloff and Superstar Graham when they were all, Dusty Rhodes, they were all in the AWA together in the early 70s, and Don had had that uh, chance to take, and take from each of them and put it into his own package.
2: Yeah, well, I grew up in Minnesota.
1: <laughs> I know you did, sir. And I do remember when you worked in the AWA in the uh, uh, late 70s for a bit, you worked for Vern in 70, I think 76, 77, you were on AWA cards.
2: Yeah, it, was, it wasn't very much. That, uh, when, when I went home to see my family, uh, I would call Vern and he would, uh, Vern, Gagne, Mr. Ganya and then he would uh, use me while I was home for a week or two weeks uh, or something like that, yeah.
1: Did you have a chance last week, I know you had mentioned, Bob, that you were uh, at the WrestleMania events. Um, did you have a chance to run into Jim Brunzel at all? Because he was out there. I talked with Jimmy the other day and uh, he was, uh, he was down there.
2: He was at WrestleMania.
1: Well, he was out, he was there for the festivities over some of the weekend, and then he came home on I think it was Sunday morning. He came home or something.
2: Yeah, well, he had something called WrestleCon there. Maybe he was there. That's what it was, Bob. Thank you. And That's I was what there. Was. Uh, I, you know, yeah, I, did, I didn't see him. Okay. Uh, well, he, he was. You no, know, I kind of thought that he and Greg Gagne uh, uh, were going to be inducted to the Hall of Fame at one time. <laughs> you know. Well, but we I, could argue that they that, should but be, but I then mean, I mean, it didn't come true. I, I heard it like maybe a couple months before, you know, the Hall of Fame.
1: Sure. Well, we could certainly argue that they should be in it, but uh, you know, Ivan Koloff should be too, and I think there's politics behind the scenes that's not letting that happen, and maybe yeah, someday.
2: Yeah. yeah. Right. Right.
1: How yeah. did a match? Talking about your Madison Square Garden title defenses. How did a match with a challenger named Swede Hansen come about? It was a one time and how how did that
2: evolve? Yeah, that was uh yeah, you know um yeah, I uh uh I worked with him and uh, yeah, they just uh, that's how they did it you know, <laughs> it was the plan uh, and I and, you know, he just uh um yeah, I'm I'm not the uh, it just it is i'm not really sure <laughs> how yeah yeah but the one that i kind of like uh, is the ending that we did with greg valentine when he uh they held up the title for uh, in between
0: oh yeah back in 1981 right. yeah yeah let's uh yeah, that was uh, well, we'll fast forward here that was kind of back uh, when Valentine came into the fold again, and this yeah. kind of created a lot of controversy uh, with with uh, the title issue. Yeah, take us back into this uh, frame of matches that you had with Greg Valentine.
2: Well, yeah, he uh, he um, you know came into the territory, and then um, and Vince asked me to think of a, a finish. That was the only one he ever asked it. I said I'm gonna pick him uh, pick him up, and uh, we wore the same color uh, trunks and this that, that night. And uh well well I well uh um well I we had well, I had him in a position and it just switched position where uh it looked like uh he was gonna pin me then I pinned him and the and we bumped the referee going up with my feet or his feet. And uh so the ref didn't see that and then he got up and counted one, two, three and then uh Greg jumped up and uh um the, he uh, they raised he raised his hand. He didn't know which one he was counting. <laughs> He was—he actually counted him out, but then he, G- rolled, raised, he uh, raised his hand in victory. I was down on the floor because I was selling what he had done to me before, mm-hmm. and uh, I actually pinned him. And then, uh, and then there was a, a big argument in the ring, and uh, this and that, and uh, um, you know, it, it made for a pretty good return match
0: hmm and of uh, which you got the, the victor. Uh, I want to talk, because this is a guy that worked uh, in the AWA, and you worked a couple of matches with him at the end of 1979. It's another one of those double-tough uh, West Texas boys. Uh, what was the experience working with, uh, in the chemistry you got with Big Bad Bobby Duncombe?
2: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, a, he was a, a good football player, and he was a great wrestler, too, but 15 minutes was about his limit. And uh, uh, you know he would go hard, and, uh, and he worked very hard. When he got done, he, he'd uh, be in the dressing room, laying on the floor, gasping for air. He was—he uh, uh, just uh, worked so hard, he just ran out of gas.
0: So he, he wasn't exactly going to be one of your uh, sixty-minute broadways, uh, as far as you couldn't—you couldn't carry him past the fifteen-minute mark. But in that fifteen minutes, I suppose you got the, the absolute best of Bobby. Then
1: I would yeah, like oh, to yeah. interject he, something he, about. Uh, Bobby Duncombe. While you're talking about him gasping for air or not being able to go, you know, a long time. When yeah. when Bob Duncombe was in the AWA, uh Bob and Glenn, you probably know, he was half of the AWA tag champs with Blackjack Lanza for uh, oh, yeah. uh, over a year. Yeah, and right. one of the things that Vern Gagne said, Vern always respected Bobby Duncombe. He really liked him as a wrestler. He enjoyed him as a worker. But but Vern said one time he says I got to keep him in the tag team match because I can only get about ten minutes at a time out of him. But he, when <laughs> he yeah. does good. And yeah. when you said when you made that comment, that came back to me that uh, Bob was great for the tag team match because he could get in and out, and then you really got good stuff out of him.
2: Yeah, yeah. But he literally laid on the floor in the dressing room. Uh, yeah. After the matches that I had, you know that we had, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay.
2: Uh, after you but, worked. It, but when he was working he 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 didn't let up you know it was he was he was just full bore for that long and they had to, it wouldn't go any further yeah right
0: mhm In uh, 1980, you you worked a few different times with Ken Patera. We talked about uh, your work with Patera. Uh, uh, You did a couple of defenses uh, against uh, some guys that were known as a tag team unit, and it may have been just uh, foreshadowing for your uh, tag team match you uh, had with these guys with Pedro Morales in August at the showdown at Shea. But what was it like to split up the Samoans and work them separate matches uh, as far as title shots in the singles realm? Because those guys were most notably tag team wrestlers
2: yeah 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 they were and but you know it was uh it was it was different it was uh um you know kind of um uh, you know they were they were they were good workers they were big guys and uh they looked like monsters and they looked like they could beat anybody and uh it was you know and i'm just uh, an all american boy type of person so uh you know they they if they i think people thought they had a chance to uh, you know, to, and I was always a constant underdog, also. So, uh, um, you know, there's always a chance that I was going to be gone, that the, the, you know, after the match. But then I was always lucky enough to come sneak a victory in.
0: Mm-hmm. And speaking of the and showdown, I, I usually, go ahead. What? Pardon me. I was. I was going to say, speaking of uh, the showdown at Shea, I was just going to uh, segue into uh, before we get into your tag match with uh, with the Wild Samoans that you had with uh, with Pedro. Um, you you took on a guy that. Uh, I guess it was a pretty good match for you in size factor. It was almost similar. It was a guy that was coming off a fresh heel turn, Larry Zabisco. Now, for many years, Larry played the face in his early uh, WWF career. Uh, let's talk about uh, Zabisco because right at, you had him right away after his red hot uh, heel turn on Bruno.
2: Yeah, yeah, and then at, he was we wrestled in the garden, uh, and that was the match leading up to the Shea Stadium.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So it was sort of a, a building up of momentum for Larry. And uh, what was uh, Larry like to work with? Uh, it was Was he uh, definitely uh, as what they said about it? He was a protege of Bruno. Was it Was it very uh, difficult to work with Larry, or was he a pretty pretty much a walk in the park?
2: You know what? I had a fun, I had a lot of fun. You know, he wrest He was in uh, amateur wrestling uh, when he was in school, and uh, I had a lot of fun uh, wrestling with him. He was. Uh, he was good in the ring, and uh, I see I see no problem getting in the ring
0: with him at any time. Okay. So. And then we had the showdown at Shea in August of that year where you won the tag titles with, with Pedro. But we're going to go into the fall. And, George, these are some extra special, one of these extra special matches that Bob had an opportunity to compete with various uh, champions from other territories. And uh, we're going to bring in a, a match in September of 1980. As we're kind of getting close to wrapping up, we may have to make this a two-part episode down the line as we wrap up 1980, but let's get to September 1980, Harley Race. What do you think about that, uh, um, George?
1: Well, you know, that was a a title versus title. It was the first time that the WWF title was uh, put against the line of NWA title, and Harley Race was the champion. Bob, you met Harley in the Madison Square Garden match on September 22nd, 1980. How was it working with Harley? And obviously, I'm going to tell you there probably was no ever intent to have any type of conclusion. Uh, Harley... uh, you won the match by DQ. So, how did that come about? As you were going to work the finish, so that it still left both of you with your prestige.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, but, well, they, yeah, they they weren't going to uh, switch them or anything like that. So they just uh, worked out a you know where where I got the win or I got the win by some kind of DQ, I guess. And uh,
1: yeah, it was a disqualification.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was, okay. Okay. Uh, anyway. Uh, um, I'm fine with that, uh, and uh, he, uh, you know, Harley worked hard. Uh, I, I and I worked. I've had uh, you know quite a few matches prior to that in St. Louis and Omaha Nebraska when I was in the AWA. They had a Vern Gagne had me go Broadway with uh, Harley um, back then, and uh, mm-hmm. that that uh, that was kind of a very that was an uplift for me to be able to do a Broadway with uh, Harley um, in any place, but uh, without when looking I, at I was my results just getting going in the business. But, Without
1: uh, looking at my results for St. Louis, I do not have them handy here. Did you work against Harley in St. Louis over the Missouri
2: title? Yeah, he dropped it to me.
1: That's what I thought, okay.
2: He dropped it to me. He had it for about, He was the longest reigning uh, uh, champion as far as that uh, local belt, Missouri State Championship, but he dropped yep. it to me. and okay. uh, And then he really... Behind the scenes, in the meetings and stuff, he was really uh, um, um, sort of real positive about my uh, where what I was doing and where I was going. He was very helpful. Yeah, and and the, and the, and we, the, uh, we didn't know this until we started writing right or I didn't know it, but they were preparing me to be to be maybe be in the war for the NWA title. Right,
1: and I have they heard actually that had a vote
2: there, and it ended up to be a tie between three wrestlers.
1: Who were the other two,
2: Bob? It was Harley yep. and then Jack Briscoe. Okay. It was Terry that wanted to drop the belt. Right. You know, he had it for a couple of years, I think, and, and in that territory, you the champion travels a lot. Oh, yeah. And it's hard to deal with. It's, it's very, it wears you down, and uh, he just wanted to get out of it.
1: I remember but Harley the weird Ray thing was, one Vince
2: time... Vince Sr. came down broke the tie, voted for Harley, and then he took me back to New York.
1: Okay. I remember Harley Race saying one time when he was NWA champion, in one calendar year he said he'd worked 368 times. And there were only 365 days in the year, but a lot of those times were uh, double shots. They'd work an afternoon card, he'd have to fly somewhere and work an evening card. And Harley said it was the most grueling schedule that he had ever endured. But he worked 368 uh, times one year.
2: Oh, I can imagine. You know, like, and I, uh, you know, I, if I would have, you know, any nobody can take that kind of uh, that kind of schedule. And I, you know, I can see why somebody would. After two years, you're you're almost gone. You know, but in the W in the WWWF at the first, I was I was very content and I wasn't didn't have to travel a lot lot and. uh-uh you know, I felt like I could go forever just about, you know.
1: How, how many days a week did you work, or how many days a month did you work back then in the WWF?
2: Well, um, you know, there's a lot of times when they, ha- you know, they do the high schools and stuff like that, and I wouldn't go to them. So sure. it wasn't day of the week. It was probably probably averaged uh, maybe uh, uh, three or four uh, okay. matches a day a week. And, and sure. a lot of them, you know, I lived in Connecticut, and uh, that was the middle of the territory back then, and you know, it was driving. I'd be home at night and stuff like that. And um, you know, it, I, I I really it was a pleasure. And I wasn't I wasn't worn my wearing myself out. And I wasn't uh, losing sleep or anything like that. And uh, you know, I I had it for uh, five years and ten months. And um, right. Um, you know, I I I thought I could have kept it for another if I could have uh, not gotten beat in the ring. I thought I could have kept it for another five years at least. You know.
1: Bob, what I want to do here is we're getting close to the end of our own Broadway here. Um, I want to flash forward a little bit, and let's go into to October of 83. You had a couple of matches against Bill Eadie when he was working as the masked superstar. Yes. Was there ever any conversation at that point in time that Bill Eadie might be your successor, or was that just something that uh, I know I've heard that, and I would like to get your your feet on it.
2: Uh, none whatsoever, as far as I know.
1: Okay, good. Okay, well, that clarifies that for me. So then, yeah. as you got close to uh, the end of 83, how long in advance did you know that uh, the Iron Sheik was going to drop, take the title from you and that Hogan was going to be the successor? Can you lead us up to those events, how that all transpired?
2: Um, the um, I, I knew I didn't. Uh, uh, they, they asked me uh, who I would like to drop it to, and I knew on the totem pole uh, the sheik was the next guy coming up. Okay. He said, "I'll drop it to the Iron Sheik," and then uh, and I didn't know that very long ahead of time. But uh, okay. the thing was that when he beat me, I was supposed to have that match for the next uh, in the next uh, month. get the title back so
1: did you know that they were bringing in hogan or did did you somehow get did you get a double cross there how did that come about
2: i was booked to wrestle the iron Sheik on the return and they took me out two weeks after that or two weeks before the match
1: so pretty much right about to the date you you were unaware of of the
2: change unaware
1: yes yeah What were your feelings about that, Bob, after you'd been the, you know, the flag bearer for the company and you'd done so well and you were a good draw? Did that, did you feel bad about that? Were you,
2: you know, I, I did, I did, I did. And I'm not now, I, uh, but I did back then because all, I would, all, uh, I would have rather been told. I wouldn't have said no. I would have rather been told, you know, the complete truth, uh, and uh it's a matter of trust right uh but um i would have rather been told and then uh, you know i wouldn't have said no i would have but i i wish i would have been told
1: you well know. i think that kind of brings us full circle because we talked earlier in our show today that you know the difference between vince senior and vince junior and then the the very nature of the business when vince junior was was going national that sometimes that trust wasn't there or the or the wrestlers weren't informed and things just weren't going like they probably did in the year and years previous.
2: You know, Vince McMahon Sr. trusted me completely, but I right. trusted him completely also.
1: Well, and that's the way it works in any type of a marriage, I'll tell you that. <laughs>
2: so. But, you know, I don't despise Vince McMahon Jr. for that. I, I understand what he was going through as far as right. taking over that business and then, you know, then having a the fight that the biggest war ever in the wrestling business, um, you know, he was under a lot of pressure. And uh, he uh, was doing things that he thought was uh, right for the business.
1: Well, you know, I think you're with me and probably a lot of people that uh, saw that happen at the time, that in hindsight we realized that's the way it was and we no longer are mad or carry that grudge um, i think vince did exactly what he had to do with the plans that he had and other promoters you know like they were in the same war Vern Gagne, you know for the awa and and the nwa territories i mean they were all fighting that same battle and uh it it was a very chaotic
2: time yeah yeah, yeah it was uh, it was uh it was a tough times yeah and uh If everything was really, it was, you know, our business was kind of crazy anyway, but it was a lot crazier then. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm kind of glad I wasn't in it. Yeah.
1: Well, you did step away for a little bit, Bob. Um, We're going to probably Glenn's going to be giving us the the flag here pretty soon. But is there anything else that you want to share with us? And I want you to get a plug in for your book. And anything else you want to share with us? And then I want you to know you can come back anytime you want. If you want to give us a holler, we'd be glad to have you on
2: again. Yeah, I wouldn't mind kind of trying to set up a book signing out there someplace and then uh, maybe do a radio interview at the same time and be out there live.
1: That would be great, and I would encourage you, Bob, that if you do come into the Twin Cities, if you ever get a chance... Um, I would be honored if you give me a holler and and if you have a book signing, I would love to join you. Maybe we grab lunch or something and we could
2: definitely, I know we
1: can get Glenn included in doing a radio show at that time. Oh, for
0: sure.
2: Yeah, well, you know, as far as the book, the people can get a book at uh, bobbacklundnow.com and if somebody did that, they would do it through PayPal and then PayPal sends me the information. I don't hire anybody else to Mail the books to the people. I do it myself. I email the person that uh, uh, that uh, ordered the book, and I thank them for it. And I tell them I'm going to sign the book, and I'm going to send it tomorrow. Uh, and uh, uh, I try to uh, you know touch people as much as I can because I love the people and I love what they did did for me over the years, the support they gave me. And uh, I'm and right now I'm on a mission to try to. Uh, inspire as many people as I can through the book. I believe there's some things in there that would uh, uh, help somebody to climb the ladder of success. And I'm very proud and happy to be able to uh, mail and sign a book for people, and especially Minnesota. It's where I grew up. It's my roots. And uh, I never forget about that state. And uh, uh, the people in Minnesota, I don't think they – sometimes they don't realize how Great it is to grow up in that state.
0: Absolutely. I agree 100%. Uh, I want to thank you guys. Uh, the clock on the wall uh, says it's uh, about time to wrap up this edition of Wrestling Memories. Uh, like I said, uh, whatever George said about uh, coming back, uh, I echo that. Uh, the door is definitely open for more uh, talk with uh, Mr. Bob Backland. And uh, yes, it is time to go. And for George Shire and Bob Backland. And Bob, thank you for coming on the program, by the way.
2: Thank you for having me, sir, and I'll I'll contact you sometime when I'm going to come back that way.
0: Absolutely, and George, thank you once again for being part of the program, my friend. It's a joy to do this each and every week with you.
1: As always, Glenn, we'll be back again next week to do it again.
0: Yes, uh, this has been Rasslin' Memories. So long, guys. Have a great day.
1: Thank you, gentlemen.